0: Hi everyone. Welcome to Energy Geos. My name is Rochelle Kernan and today I have Edith Wilson who is here today. How are you doing Edith? I'm doing well
1: Rochelle. How are you?
0: I'm really good. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time to be here today uh, for this podcast, our kickoff podcast for EGOs. So to get started today, um, I just wanna ask you some questions about yourself and your background, get to know you a little bit better. And then also just some general thoughts about uh, what's going on in our profession as geologists right now, as we are sort of transitioning, hopefully out of this post COVID world or COVID world into a post COVID world. Sounds good. Yeah. So my first question for you is, um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And can you tell me a little bit about what influenced you the most as you were growing up?
1: Um, I was born in Macon, Georgia and spent the first 18 years of my life there. It's a very um, small uh, conservative Southern town. And um, I went to a a tiny little high school. I was one of 36 in my graduating class and the only um, uh, member of that class to go to school out of state. So um, when I was growing up, I was very much influenced by my mother who had gone to college in New England at Radcliffe and then at Harvard and had become uh, an architect um, after studying at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. So from her, I kind of developed this vision of a a world beyond my kind of high school peers and going to school at the University of Georgia and sort of doing the same thing that everyone had always done in my hometown. And I had also um, uh, developed a love of science when I was in high school, um, in part because I had one of those fantastic teachers that just grabs you by the imagination. And um, Mr. Batson was our high school biology teacher and he took us all to do field work in the Okefenokee Swamp. And that sort of created the, the seed of my love for studying the natural world. And then when I went off to Dartmouth to college, um, the, you know, the geology department had, um, beers and softball on Friday afternoons and field trips. <laughs> What's not to like about that?
0: <laughs> uh huh. Oh, I totally agree. I feel like I got roped into geology by a similar trend, a similar way.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We all have the, a story along those lines, don't
0: we? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. So you going back to your mother's story. So how did your mother, how did she end up being in Macon, Georgia?
1: Well, yeah, I come from a, a, a long line of impressive women. I have to say this. My grandmother, um, uh, my, fam- my, my father and my mother's families were both native Georgians from way back. Um, but my grandmother was. Um, Married very young in the, in the teens Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, had two small children and then was divorced when my mother was just three years old. So my grandmother in the 19 teens was a young divorcee with two children. And she left her two children with her parents went to France to Fontainebleau to study at the L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts to become an architect. So she came back to Georgia and could not Uh, study any further in the US because she was a woman. So she apprenticed and picked up her registration, became the first registered female architect in Georgia, and was later made a fellow of the American Institute of Architects. So so my grandmother had already sort of set this path of being a pioneering woman. And I believe my mother followed in those footsteps because she had a flair for design as well. So both, all three of us, Georgia women, all three three of us who left home to study what we loved. And um, I'm the only one who didn't come back. <laughs> um, yeah. And well, to be honest, my main driver for not going back to the deep South was because I wanted to live in a more inclusive and diverse world than yeah. was allowed at the time in Georgia.
0: Yeah, that's that's so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing a bit more of your family history. Mm-hmm. I you know, diversity and inclusion is something that I like to think about a lot. And it seems to me that you always have sort of that one that really breaks out from a family tree, if you will. But it often will take several generations for women to, you know, feel comfortable or have some sort of like outside force encouraging them to pursue their own intellectual interests, for example. So Yeah, that's, that's a really great story. But with that being said, I think it's, it's really good to be able to, you know, inspire people that maybe aren't even your immediate family, but just to be a role model for people in Mm -hmm. general who may not have access to that kind of um, mentoring growing up.
1: And it took me a while to realize that I came from a lineage of role models. It's funny, Mm -hmm. you don't see it from the inside sometimes.
0: No, no, it just seems Mm -hmm. probably normal to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. I love hearing stories like that. So you had mentioned that you went to school at Dartmouth. Was that just for your undergraduate degree or can you tell me more about your other degrees and sort of how you found your way into energy?
1: Okay. Yeah, no, I, um, I did my undergraduate degree at Dartmouth, which at the time was very much a hard rock school. Mm -hmm. So in, um, in, in between my junior and senior years and postgraduate, I worked for Anaconda, the mining company that no longer exists. I did silver prospecting out in Montana and Idaho in the, um, in the forest, in the, um, uh, U S national forests out there. Um, Mm -hmm. so, um, Once I uh, left Dartmouth and and went to work for Anaconda, it was about the early 80s. It was sort of equivalent to going to work for the oil industry in 1986 or 87 because um, it was a dying industry. It was going away. Anaconda itself was closing up shops. So here I was working in a profession I loved for an industry that was dying. So what did I decide to do? Go back to graduate school. And I ended up at Johns Hopkins, um, in Baltimore, where I met my husband, who was also a graduate student there. And, um, uh, at Hopkins, I decided to go straight for a PhD. I was going to be research, research, research all the way, you know, work on a faculty, do academics for the rest of my life because this industry work was for the birds, right? Because my mine, yeah. mine had just shut down, right? Yeah. So um, anyway, my husband and I uh, both finished our degrees in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. right when the oil and gas business was at its absolute worst and so of course there were no jobs anywhere academic or otherwise and by a very small quirk there a a position came open in Shell's research lab in Houston that was perfectly suited to my husband's particular talents Mm -hmm. so he was offered a position at Shell Research And I uh, followed him there with my uh, half-finished dissertation in hand, Mm -hmm. finished up my dissertation work, and through going to all the parties with the Shell husbands and their Amoco wives, (laughs) I found out that there was a lot of fun geology going on in the um, oil and gas business on the exploration side, a lot of field work, a lot of 3D seismic um, interpretation, a lot of basin modeling, a lot of really fun new rank Wildcat basins to look at. So uh, I became an exploration geologist with um, Amoco doing international work in the Middle East and Africa um, Mm. in in the late 1980s. So my husband and I started in the oil and gas business at a time when um, Houston was half empty at the bottom of its depression. We both just sort of wangled our way into jobs and Because of that, we were both uh, very, um, uh, you know, we we never had the luxury of of big raises or promotions or Mm -hmm. um, even going six months without our company having a major layoff. So uh, we worked really hard. We saved a salary every year and, uh, you know, just sort of uh, came into the business at the rock bottom and sort of built our careers from that point.
0: Yeah, so would you say that some key pieces of uh, advice maybe to help those, because I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that right now, Mm -hmm. would you say that it was your network, your resilience, and maybe a bit of luck that you guys ended up finding um, something in being able to continue your careers in energy?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, for us it was well, it was a couple of things for both me at Amoco and Shell and Glenn at Shell. There were connections to our universities, and I, I also, I mean, I don't want to sound um, egotistical about this, but uh, you know, Rochelle, I know you have a similar position and your expertise with salt tectonics. My husband and I both had a very strong academic credential to offer. And, and, you know, I feel like that's important to say because I mean, most of the people who are out there now who are looking for work, you know, have that academic strength, but you have to be willing to to sort of push that as, as the value that you bring to the company. And then it's not an and or world. It's not being good technically or having the right connections or having a little bit of luck, you know, you really have to pile all those things on top of each other. So I think, you know, relying on our network, especially from academia, I mean, that was what both got us into the industry. It was that reliance on alumni from our institutions. In my case, Dartmouth and Glenn's, it was Hopkins. Um, But also that strong technical credential, and then just the ability to take a risk and to not be discouraged by the no. I have in my career file mm-hmm. three letters from Amico from three different people. The first two are rejections, mm-hmm. and third is an offer. Yep. Two rejections later, the names on those rejection letters gave me great performance reviews. Oh wow! <laughs> so so yeah. you know, you just have to be willing to be persistent. So I, I think I would say persistence is also a very important trait.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's really good advice. Because I know I've even gone through that where, you know, you apply for a job, and then you see it come up again, because they didn't find the right person, the right Mm -hmm. candidate for it, then you retool it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm like, I'll apply for the same job a few times. And I'm just like, they must think I'm crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I just won't give up. But I guess that who cares? Like, the worst that can happen is they just say no, right? And that's that's it and you you just don't take it personal it doesn't mean you're you're not a good geologist or a good scientist or it's just not meant to be your path today that's that's so true and
1: you know I will say another uh on the risk-taking side which of course we're all kind of born risk-takers right because that's Mm -hmm. what we do but um but on the risk-taking side I have also not pursued jobs because they weren't I thought a fit for my credentials or my, or my desires. And in one case it landed me in the perfect job that I wanted. I told the company that I was interviewing with, um, you know, I just don't really think this is a good idea for me. I don't think I'm suited for this job. And they said, well, what job would you want? And I told Mm -hmm. them six months later, they came back and offered me that job. So I think there's a lot of, a lot to be said for, both pursuing the job you do want but also recognizing when it's not a good fit and yeah. you know even if it even if you need it if it's not right it's it's better to just move on
0: yeah that's really good advice thank you for that response that's really helpful and i hope that some people can find some ease um hearing you say that uh so moving on to another topic uh which energy se- sector are you currently in and what do you like most about your specific field that you're working in today? And why, why did you shift into it or what brought you to this spot that you're in today?
1: A lot of, lot of, a lot of history wrapped up into that question, Rochelle. <laughs> Um, but um, uh, here is uh, sort of where I went in my career trajectory. I spent 25 years in the oil and gas business and starting with, you know, the super majors, first Amoco, which was bought by BP and I worked for BP for a few years. Then I tried to move to a slightly smaller company, uh, did manage to move to a smaller community from Houston and went to work for Phillips Petroleum, Uh, in Oklahoma, which was then of course, which then bought Conoco and became Conoco Phillips and got big again. So uh, I went to an even smaller company which was a small family owned company here in Tulsa called uh, Samson for a few years. Um, And then started my own little company. So I ended my career in the oil and gas business after selling out my interest in a little operating company Um, with a teeny tiny uh, one to two person oil and gas consulting firm, Mm -hmm. right? So I went from super major to teeny tiny, just me. um, And that's where I ended in the oil and gas uh, business. Today, I'm working again in a small consultancy, the same group, but in an entirely different arena of the energy world. I still love the, the concept behind Um, the United Nations strategic development goal number seven, which I would not have been able to articulate for you when I worked for Amoco, but was still driving me at that time, which is that I love being part of the machinery that provides affordable, reliable energy for the world. I think that just makes us tick and, and I love being part of that. But now what I do, instead of working to provide oil and gas, which used to be the cleanest and most efficient form of energy at that moment, Mm
0: -hmm. now I work
1: on so-called clean energy and renewable projects. So my little consultancy about four or five years ago, I just completely retooled, looked at what skills I had to offer and what would motivate me. Um, And at the time, I was very motivated by having a positive impact on climate mitigation um, because I had seen uh, what what was happening with the burning of fossil fuels and how we needed to to take steps to, to change that. And I got completely captured by the concept that not only are renewable energy resources good for the economy in the sense that they're good for um, uh, keeping climate change at a minimum, but that they are also because of rapid technology development, the, the most efficient and affordable energy that we can, can, uh, uh, spread around the world to, uh, to, to actually create energy equity so that we don't have just the 10% of the wealthiest people in the world burning all the fossil fuels and living at a high standard of living. What I love about working in the renewable business is not only is it the high tech of tomorrow, but it's also the vehicle for finally reaching um, energy equity and creating or, and, and, and addressing that energy for all piece of SDG7 that I find so compelling. So that's what I'm doing now. I work mostly with um, battery tech companies, a a few small critical minerals mining clients, and I do quite a bit of um, pro bono work with climate change mitigation. So
0: That's great. Yeah, I was wondering about the climate change mitigation. So is it all basically pro bono work right now or is that actually sort of an emerging field for geologists who maybe have studied climate change or have some sort of geochemical background of you know carbon in the air something like that how, how is that field
1: great yeah great great question i mean for me it's pro bono in in part because of the stage i am I I am with my career in the sense that what I have to offer you know is that I can make some maps and I can do some advocacy work and I can um, I work uh, with the AGU as a as a citizen scientist with their thriving earth exchange program so for example I did some mapping work after hurricane Harvey with um, the neighborhoods of northeast Houston. Um, in order to, to, to try to um, uh, obtain a, a fair allocate a more equitable allocation of funds from for from Hurricane Harvey recovery funds. So, um, but, but as a career option, if, if I were 20 now and coming or 22 and coming out with a bachelor's in earth science, there's so many ways that you could go to be involved in active climate mitigation efforts. Um, in this country, for example, working with FEMA, um, working with um, any one of the coastal land, wetlands management agencies, um, uh, or, or working with urban planning and design, you know, tr- trying to figure out um, with some of the so- so-called livable cities firms, like uh, uh, like Siemens in Europe or like um, Arcadis here, um, working with those firms to try to build cities better and, and and in a more resilient fashion. So, if I were starting out in a career, I would be looking at those sorts of companies. The 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 um, integrated utility companies that are putting in uh, renewable energy along with geothermal and and building uh, uh, floodplain design better. Um, There there are a number of my younger colleagues who are just out of graduate school who are taking that approach to their career development. Um, Instead of studying the subsurface, they're studying Mm -hmm. the surface and, and they're putting their geoscience skills to use in managing the surface, and that to me is the future of a of a, a, a real climate impact career for a geoscientist.
0: Oh, that's great! I had, yeah, I had no idea. Do you foresee um, the impact of like sea level rise really being prevalent um, over like the next decade or two? And you know, trying to understand and quantify which neighborhoods or which cities are at high risk um for that or is that something much further on the horizon do you think
1: well i think it depends on what part of the planet you're you're speaking of um and and certainly um in parts of the us for example those those um, risks will come faster than in others, you know, if we're mm-hmm. talking about Manhattan versus um, South Florida, for example. Mm-hmm. But I think almost more so than that, where what, what's being addressed by um, the big, you know, green development firms is how do we better manage our cities so that they're utility infrastructure is having less impact on climate change so that there are renewable energy options in place. And so it's more resilient to some of the effects that we're feeling on climate change right now. And that is an increase in storms, an increase in severity of storms, uh, you know, much more prevalent and, and uh, frequent flooding. So how do we build our cities to both not contribute more to climate change And how do we build them to be more resilient to the impact of climate change that we're already seeing today, much less the coastal flooding, um, you know, from sea levels rise that we will surely see in the future if we're, if we can't arrest it.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. That's a, I really enjoyed hearing you talk about that. That's fascinating. Um, So in your career, what has been your dream job or role and are you still building your dream job or do you feel like you are living it or have you already lived it?
1: Oh, that is, that is such a great question. And I, I I'm going to answer it with a story. Have you figured that out about me yet? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm basically a ham and a storyteller. So I'm, I'm going to answer that with a story because yeah. I, I have a, I have a dream, uh link of stories that that just unfolded another chapter last week um, the the job that i loved the most in in the world of um of um, uh, oil and gas exploration was when i was looking in a brand new basin for the first time I was mapping seismic in Angola in the offshore Bengala Basin, and we literally had no well control. We knew the sediment water interface, we knew the top of the salt, and everything else we had to infer from outcrop. Mm-hmm. I had seismic lines where Pete Vale had come in as a consultant and drawn a little line and, na- and, and named and labeled it 92 MYA, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so to be at that sort of edge of things. And at the time I was doing that, I was working really closely with a bunch of Angolan geoscientists at Mm -hmm. Sonangal, the national oil company of Angola and developed some really strong relationships with them. So page forward from 1995 to 2020. So page forward, 25 years, About three weeks ago, I had a connection reach out on LinkedIn from Sonangal in Angola, who had seen a project I worked on two years ago where I was doing risk management for a sustainable agriculture project in Mozambique. Mm -hmm. And this gentleman was a geophysicist, is a geophysicist at Sonangal, And he had reached out because he recognized my name from the old project. There were still some data files back there and his father is a professor at an agricultural school in Angola. And he wanted to see if we could connect and figure out a way to do a similar kind of um, uh, sustainable energy project with uh, with his father's university in Angola. So I, I think what I'm trying to tell you is, I've been living my dream job since I started in 1987 and what I love about it, what makes it still a dream job today is that there is no such thing as a connection that you'll never meet again. (laughs) You know, (laughs) there's this thread that runs through our lives as earth scientists that is it's all about the geology, but it's all, it's mostly about the people that we do the geology with. And, yeah. and to me, that's what makes me every day kind of get up and look in the mirror and say, I, I can't believe I am lucky enough to have this job.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's such an amazing story. Yeah. It comes full circle now. Yep. Hopefully, mm-hmm. I think you're probably more towards uh, mid to end career now, but yep. to see that come all the way back yep. around. Exactly. That's amazing. Sorry. And you know that-
1: that's the advice I always give students and young professionals and, you know, old professionals, whatever on, um, on, uh, on networking is never, ever, ever, take a connection for granted. You never know whether that software salesman that you just happened to negotiate a deal with Mm -hmm. is one day going to open up an opportunity for you that you never would have dreamed of. You never know when a connection is going to um, help you out or you'll have the opportunity to help them out. So um, every single connection is important.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I was sort of raised with the mentality of you know you treat the janitor the same way as the CEO because right. you never know when you might need that janitor to be there for yeah. you.
1: <laughs> and have we all not learned that in this yeah. in this yeah. world where essential work, um, yeah. you know, where the people who are who are taking the risks every day to enable us to live our lives safely, are those workers that. Um, you know, in the past, we may have overlooked as, you know, the the clerk at the grocery store.
0: Yeah, I think that is one thing that COVID has really reinforced and hopefully taught a lot of people is to respect everyone in their job. Yep. That's great. Well, I have one more question for you. And um, I always like to to ask people this. Um, This is from a self-care or more of a wellness perspective what do you do to take care of yourself and maintain your energy levels and do things to maybe avoid burnout? (laughs) How do you keep going? Yeah. Um, and you know,
1: particularly in this last eight to nine months, um, that is such a, a really important question. And, um, uh, I'll tell you, um, and and I I am a little bit older than you are, Rochelle, so I I speak from the perspective of being, you know, kind of in, say, the third quarter of my life, Mm -hmm. and what you find, I just turned 60, and what you find is that suddenly you begin to lose people, and even pre-COVID, I had um, had some very dear friends and very... um, uh, close family who suddenly fell prey to, um, to fatal illnesses uh, through no fault of their own. So what I decided to do was to look at myself from a health perspective and say, you know, what can I do to make myself as resilient and as healthy as possible? Um, And at the time um, I had way too many pounds on me and I ate the typical American diet of lots and lots of meat and cheese. And uh, at about the same time, the uh, the IPCC, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, published their report that looked at land use. And I sort of saw that you know, if I changed the way I eat, I could both help with climate change in addition to um, working on renewable energy instead of um, fossil fuel projects. And I could also have a bigger impact on my own health than anything the doctors had been doing with their increasingly expensive poking and prodding tests that insurance mm-hmm. paid for so I went on a pescatarian, uh, mainly vegetarian and fish diet and um, took myself down from um, knocking on the door of obesity to a normal weight. And COVID just really enhanced my desire to do that because I just said to myself, if I can't do a lot of the things I love, like travel, etc." cetera. I'm going to do something that will make me more resilient to this beast out there. Yeah. And so focusing, I mean, it sounds very selfish, but focusing on my own health and really putting my emphasis and energy there has kind of given me a, a goal that I mean, you know, a, a, a purpose and a project that I can that, that takes me from day to day, because every yeah. day I can make good choices every day I can you know, feel the results and how much healthier I feel. So um, mm-hmm. that's been my tool. I, I don't know that it is necessary or even useful for everyone, but I guess if you can find something that, that you can split up into small daily positive results, mm-hmm. that's, that's what that's done for me. So um, I, I'm sure there are lots of other examples of things that people do that have that same impact. But I find that I need that. I need those daily little doses of joy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's hard. It's hard to find that if you if you uh, lose your ability to just go out to lunch with friends.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I guess it's the same as like what we talk about in oil geology, for example, our basin model or Prospect garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're eating well and healthy, then hopefully you'll feel well and you'll be able to put out yeah. really good energy into the world. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Edith. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I'm really, really glad you were able to squeeze me into your schedule. Uh, and just for our audience, uh, this I didn't uh, say this in the beginning, but Edith is currently running her own consultancy called rock whisper LLC, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you have any questions, um, please feel free to send us an email at geos one at gmail.com. And I can forward any questions or anything that you have. I'll forward along to Edith. Thank you all very yeah. much.
1: I'll also just also say, Rochelle, if, that I am out there on some social media platforms, just Facebook okay. and LinkedIn, but you can yep. find Rock Whisperer or Edith Newton Wilson on both Facebook and LinkedIn. And I'm happy right. to talk to anybody.
0: Thanks good. so much.
1: This has been <laughs> really fun.
0: Thank you. I hope you have a really good day. <laughs> okay.
1: Bye. Bye.